and welcome back to Becoming Educated. It's been a while, but boy, am I super excited to be back in the interview chair and learn from my inspirational guests. Before we dive into today's episode, here is a message about our sponsor. This episode of Becoming Educated has been supported by UpLearn. UpLearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools improve student grades and helps reduce teacher workloads. Teachers at over 150 schools, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Art Schools, use UpLearn to facilitate independent learning, consolidation of classroom material and as a flip learning tool. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote Becoming Educated for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot uk Today's guest is Singh Gill. Singh is a lead practitioner of secondary maths and a teacher educator. Recently, Singh wrote a brilliant book as part of the In Action series, Dunlosky's Strengthening the Student Toolbox in Action, and we discuss the contents in today's episode. Dunlosky's research focused on study strategies that are regularly employed by our students during their independent study, and he ranked them from most to least effective. And in this episode, we discuss the following and so much more. How Dunlosky's paper impacted on Singh's classroom practice. What we need to know and understand about Dunlosky's research. The strategies that are most effective, including practice testing and distributed practice, otherwise known as retrieval practice and spacing. The strategies that are least effective, including highlighting and rereading, and what we should be teaching our students to do during independent study. This is an enriching conversation and I got so much out of it. But before we dive in, I would like to introduce my new Facebook group, which I hope becomes a space for listeners to share their takeaways from the podcast and to debate ideas that I explore in these episodes. There's a link to the group in the show notes, so hopefully I will see you there. Now, Without further ado, let's dive right into episode 90 of Becoming Educated. Singh, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on Becoming Educated this evening. How are you? I'm really good, Darren. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. No, it's an absolute pleasure. I, I, I've been a supporter. I've been looking forward to your book coming out for quite some time, and I'm delighted to to have it to have it here in my hands right now. And I'm delighted to explore that as <laughs> in, in tonight's episode. So, before we do that um, and dive into the questions, can you share a little bit about you and your career in education to date, please? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been a secondary maths teacher for the better part of a decade now. Um, and the last few years, I've been a lead practitioner in a local comprehensive. Um, I also have written various blogs for um, Education Landman Foundation Research Schools um, and done a, a master's in expert teaching with Ambition Institute. Um, a little plug there, if anyone is looking for a master's in education, like look no further, that's the one you need. Um I came across um, the inaction series and uh, sort of, yeah, took myself down the writing route. Brilliant. I love that. Can you share a little bit more about that Masters in Expectation? It sounds so fascinating. A teaching geek like myself. Um, <laughs> what what does that involve? Um, like, it, honestly, there's, there's not enough words that I can use to, to like, big this thing up. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, so that they, they ambition is to create those Masters was formerly done by the Institute for Teaching um, and then emerged with Ambition School Leadership to become Ambition Institute. And it structures six modules around the common problems that we face as teachers. And they start off every module, each module is structured the same way. So the start would always be you just getting lots and lots of reading and really delving into the, the, the science and, and some of the research and evidence behind some of these problems and some solutions for and then you spend the rest of the module thinking about ways that you can incorporate that into your practice that will get the best outcomes for your students. So you'll consider different outcomes and then and then decide on like, you know, for me in my context, 
I think this is the most appropriate one. And you're coached, so you're assigned a coach and you have coaching conversations throughout the module um, to help sort of you know, unpack that and, and help that translation from you know, written research to, to classroom practice. Sounds so, so valuable, kind of translating that research into practice. And talking about that, we're going to dive into your, to your um, recently released book, it's now um, Strengthening the Student Toolbox in Action from Professor John Dunlowski. Um, before we kind of go into that, what can I ask, what first brought you to Dunlowski's paper, Strengthening the Student Toolbox? Yeah, funnily enough, it, the first time I came across it was uh, the Masters in Expert Teaching. That, that for me was really, uh, really where I began like my um, evidence-informed practice journey, I, I like to say. Um, and it was one of the first papers that was handed out on the on the course and um I think it just it's just such a great paper for me because it was so accessible like it, there wasn't you know um a lot of uh, really academic like difficult language it wasn't talking about abstract ideas um these were things that you know, I could I could go in and see how I can apply them in my classroom like it, it was quite tangible and so that was really my first exposure and, and why I sort of have hung on to it since then. I love that. To me, that it is written in such a such a simple way that you can just kind of see how it applies to your classroom. So thinking about that, um, how did it impact your classroom initially after reading it? Um, massively. And, and, and I think the, the thing that really drew me actually was um, reading by interleaving. Like it, it wasn't something I'd come across Prior to reading that paper, one of the examples and, and uh, the research that they talk about in that paper is about maths. And, uh, being uh, a maths teacher and a bit of a maths nerd as well, absolutely drew me in straight away. Um, and so I, I really sort of tried to delve into that and, and uh, you know, being perfectly honestly, uh, being perfectly honest, with me, like probably got it wrong initially um, and, and, and didn't do it quite right, and then like. I, found other research and went on to other places um, to, to get to the point where now I, I think I have a pretty good hands on it. Um, but yeah, interleaving was the one that sort of stuck out for me straight away. Definitely. Before we dive into that, can you just give a brief kind of summary? What is interleaving? Um, so yeah, I, 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 I came across the paper and interleaving was the one that sort of immediately drew me in. Um, it, it was... The example that he's used, that Professor Donoski's used in the paper, is, is about um, maths and, and sort of like shapes and properties of, of shapes and, and how the experiment used that and, and interleaves some of those properties to um, you know, with their participants. And being a maths teacher and, and master, like, that really appealed to me and sort of like I got right into it. Um, and yeah, like, hands up, I, I think I probably misapplied it and misused it uh, initially. Um, but as my knowledge and understanding has developed, I, I think now I've got to a point where I have a pretty good handle on it. Um, I would never say perfect. There's always much more that we can learn, but uh, I've definitely got a better understanding than, than I had previously. Um, but I, I think, yeah, that was the first one where it really made me think differently about how I introduce topics in maths. Certainly. I, I love that you mentioned there about how you misapplied it initially, because I think that's so common with um, teachers and I think we'll dig back into how you've applied that a little bit a little bit later on so let's dig into the, dig into your book where you can explore Dunlowski's paper in depth and, and and you begin by writing that practice testing isn't good just as highlighting isn't bad and I love that line um, can I ask what do we need to know and understand about Dunlowski's research yeah it, it was something that um Professor Donoski and I, when we were exchanging emails, one of the key messages that, that we both wanted to emphasise from the from this book was this idea that there's no such thing as a guaranteed good or bad strategy. We don't want people to run away from this book or this paper and say, I'm going to only do testing and, and distributed practice. I'm never going to let my kids touch a highlighter. I'm never going to let them summarise. Um, and and I, I think what really emphasised that for me was the categorization that Donoski used in the paper wasn't about like good or bad it was 
I've dubbed it the spectrum of effectiveness. These are, are can be most effective and these are can be least effective. And so, you know, we could do practice testing really badly. If we do practice testing and like it's just too difficult, um, kids won't really benefit. If we do it and kids are getting it wrong and we don't give them feedback, like, they, they're going to consolidate the wrong thing because we're not correcting them. Um, if kids are really good at summarising, then we shouldn't stop them from doing that. Like, it, it can help when kids are good at it. Um, and similarly, if kids want to highlight, there's nothing wrong with highlighting, as long as that's not their like only tool in their toolbox. I think that, that's so important, because I think um, some people could read that and think that, oh, we can't let the students do highlighting anymore, <laughs> and we need to do lots of testing so it's it's interesting um does the last ever talk about combining these things so students that you can make you could increase the the effectiveness if you as you called it if you highlight and then practice test the things you highlight um potentially i i don't uh i don't think he necessarily discusses um specifically how to combine it but there's no reason to i think the suggestion you just gave is a great one if i if I'm reading a, a bit from a textbook and I've highlighted the key bits of information from that, because what I'm going to do the next day is look at the title and then cover the rest of the page and try and recall everything that I've highlighted. And I'll write it down somewhere. When I then go to check my work, I can easily mark, like, mark it and correct myself because I've already highlighted it. So if that's how you're using highlighting like, to facilitate practice practice testing I, I, I think that's brilliant I think actually um, you're you're making it your life much easier by doing a combination of those things yeah I, I really like that suggestion right <laughs> thank you I'm going to start telling my kids that, that that's exactly what to do those that highlight you make sure you start retrieving that yeah, absolutely um, at the early stages of the book you include the, the science of learning um, can I ask you what, why is that important and what should we know about the science of learning? Gosh, uh, yeah, it's definitely not a small question, isn't it? What should we know about the science of learning? Um, I'll, I'll start with the, the first question, um, which was, why is it important? Or at least why I felt it was important. Um, one of my favourite quotes is, is um, if, we, if we don't give people the understanding, they'll use these ideas in the wrong way at the wrong times and for the wrong and that's really why I made that effort to include that chapter in there. What we don't want to do is just, you know, tell someone this is distributed practice, this is how you use it. And if they don't understand why that works, it's easy to then misapply it because they don't understand how forgetting happens and how um, forgetting can sometimes facilitate better learning. It makes it more difficult to use something like distributed practice properly. So that's why I, I made an effort to, to do that. It also contextualises the strategies themselves. This is why these strategies are more effective and this is why these are least, less effective. Highlighting doesn't involve me thinking really hard, processing information. Um, underlining doesn't involve me thinking really hard and processing information. Practice testing, interleaving, like I really have to focus. And it's really effortful practice and that effortfulness is what makes it effective. So that was the reasons why I included it. In terms of what what should we know about the science of learning? Um, I mean, you know, that's a huge, a huge question because the science of learning is so vast. Um, I think that the, the, the stuff that I've included in my book is a good starting point, though, things like um, Willingham's Simple Model of Memory, the ideas of retrieval strength and storage strength. But, you know, there's the stuff that I didn't include um, that, that go well beyond, but are still helpful. So things like cognitive load theory, um, a, a massive part of my practice now. But prior to that, you know, I had no idea, but I, I know having learned about it, the impact it's had. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, what, what do we need to know? Like, as much as you possibly can, <laughs> I guess is the answer. <laughs> No, it's certainly. I think that under having that understanding of Williams' model of memory really brings to life some of the, the strategies that Dunlosky 
talks about. And, and of course, it's such a vast, vast area, but you mentioned the cognitive load theory. I think understanding some of these things can really make us really good teachers. I'm interviewing Ross Morrison McGill in a few weeks and he, he talks about how, and that's understanding memory is one of the number one things that teachers should know. And I find it so fascinating that these things in, in books just like yours come up time and time again and, and you articulate it so well in there. So let's dive into Dunlosky's strategies. Um, what what are the most effective strategies that he shares? So the, the two that Dunlosky rated um, most effective were practice testing and distributive practice, also known as you know, retrieval practice and, and space practice as well. Um, and, and to contextualise it as well for people who may be unfamiliar, the toolbox paper was a summary that Professor Donosky put together, but the actual research was done by um, Donosky and a number of colleagues. And it, it, you know, it's a significantly longer paper, um, but that that's where the toolbox paper sort of came from. So they they pulled together all of this research around these ten strategies, um, and then Professor Donosky like did a great job of summarising it into the toolbox paper and then categorising it into these strategies. Right. So. These ideas, we'll kind of briefly mention them already of distributed practice and, and uh, practice testing. How, how can teachers implement both of them into their classroom practice? Um, in, in, in theory, quite, quite easily. Um, so, for example, one of the reasons distributed practice is so important is we know students are going to forget. Not just students, but humans. It's just, it's just inevitable. Um, and so what we can do is we can start today's lesson with a short recap on yesterday's lesson or the week before's lesson. But we also want to think about what that recap looks like. It could be me stood at the front saying, like, this is what we learned yesterday, kids. That's, that's, it's a recap. But really, I'm doing the thinking now. I'm doing the heavy lifting for the kids. So I could combine it with practice testing and say, these are some of the questions or problems similar to what we looked at yesterday. Can you go ahead and answer them? And I'm forcing kids then to do all the heavy lifting themselves. Obviously, that comes with much larger risk because if kids get it wrong, I then need to make sure I'm prepared to to step in and um, either give that feedback or, or ease those questions or perhaps even just do that reteaching and, and recap myself so that kids can still gain something from it. But what we don't want to do is just constantly test kids because that's what we've done previously and I want them to think hard about it. Because if they have nothing to retrieve, then they're not going to benefit from retrieval practice. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And it goes back to what you said earlier about this effortfulness is what makes practice testing effective. So if you're making them have to think hard about previous content, then... Um, it's obviously going to be a little bit more effective and, and increase what I think I'm getting quite confused about. I get quite confused around retrieval strength and storage strength, but I think that's the kind of idea that that practice testing tries to go around. Um, and what about distributed practice? How can we really th- think strategically about that in our classroom practice? Um, I was reading a blog the other day from Professor John Firth, who um, I think the blogs are fantastic. And I think actually one of the, one of the things he, he's really good at is uh, analogies. I think like, he's just fantastic at taking these like, abstract ideas and giving them like, concrete analogies. And and the way he described distributed practice was: imagine if you've painted a wall. What you're not going to do is just keep going over the paint whilst it's wet. You need to give it time to dry before you then put you know a, a, another coat on. And distributed practice is 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 similar. We want to give students some information. And then we want them some, to give some time to allow that retrieval strength, like how easily a student can recall something, to weaken. And the reason we want to do that is because the lower the retrieval strength, the bigger the gains in storage strength. So, so the harder students are having to think about recalling something, potentially, the more likely it is that when they then recall it, it will last for longer. And so that's why distributed practice is, is like really good. We don't just want to like, you know, constantly review stuff. We want to like, allow time for the information to settle, for them to have to, like, I think the word you picked out was spot on, for them to have to think effortfully 
about this information and, and bring it into their um, to the front of their minds. Right, I love that. And Jonathan first been on this this podcast before, and I'm hoping to speak to him again. So I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. And his analogy. I love that one about the painting going back, oh, it's brilliant. back over it. And what you said there about the retrieval strength um, lowering and then bringing that back to the front gives you that massive gain. I love that. I love the way that you put that. Thank you so much. Um, thinking about practice testing and distributed practice, in your book, you, love, you, you wonderfully kind of consider limitations of them. And I think this is such an important thing because it's not important that we don't see them as the um, as a silver bullet because we need to think really carefully about our practice with them. But what limitations do we need to be mindful of with practice testing and distributed practice? Yeah, um, I mean, going back to, to like our discussion at the start, we shouldn't see these things as, as, as good things. The, the paper, and hopefully what the message from the book is as well, is that these can be good effective when used well and so the limitations some of the ways that can be used poorly are we don't provide corrective feedback or potentially um, if the initial instruction isn't isn't strong and kids are learning misconceptions that don't get corrected we then give them some practice testing they're going to remember those misconceptions and they're going to remember the, the wrong things so we want to make sure we can step in um, if kids like so that's like kids remembering the wrong thing. There may be an option as well where kids like just flat out cannot remember. And they're not going to benefit from something that they just can't do. We want them to be able to think effortfully about it, but it needs to be achievable. So we want to really think carefully about our questions and, and what is it that we're asking students to try and recall. We want to like moderate the difficulty. If it's too difficult, kids kids go no benefit from it. If it's too easy, Similarly, kids like kids get might get some benefit from it, but um, we don't want that uh, to fall into a trap of thinking, you know, I've I recalled this successfully and I learned it yesterday, therefore like, I'm, I'm done. Like, I know this, um, and that like that differentiation of being able to to do it and being able to do it well consistently over an extended period of time those are two very different things. Have you ever listened to Teachers Talk Radio? If you're interested in education and want to hear from a wide range of teachers from around the world, then I highly recommend giving it a listen. You can listen live via the TTR website at ttradio.org or listen back on all good podcast platforms. I particularly like the Listen Back page on the website where you can type any name and it will locate the show you want featuring the guest or host. Amazing stuff. So I love that. I love the notes you made about um, not providing feedback and the initial instruction. I think that's so important. We're not asking students to retrieve things when we've not got our initial explanations correct because you don't want to embed that misconceptions and that notes on moderating the difficulty. Bjork calls, I think it calls it desirable difficulties. Yes. You know, this could that um, um, get the, that level of challenge. So kind of going back to what we said just a couple of months ago about the the effort, you know, and the more effort they need to put in, the more effective it is. But if they're too much effort and they're struggling really hard, it's going to have minimal impact. So that's some really, really useful points for us to consider when we're thinking about these and embedding them in our classroom practice. Now, moving on from those kind of most effective strategies, you use the, the terminology of much promise. So what are the strategies that have much promise? So, so much promise... Um, or the, the reasons for the categorizations for much promise were mainly to do with the fact that um, the evidence around them generally supported the strategies, but was, was quite narrow and, and limited. So at the time, um, for example, interleaving, a lot of the research had been done um, in maths. There, there was some research in um, subjects like art um, and um, PE, so things that involve movements as well. Um, but it was quite limited. There wasn't enough sort of for, for Professor Dorosky to say, you know, this is, I'm going to push it up into the higher category. Um, so that's where sort of the categorization of much promise um, came from. So, so you, we mentioned it leaving earlier on. Can you can I exemplify that for the listeners? Um, and give us a, an insight into your classroom and how you've used interleaving. What do you use it for? Yeah, what, what I'll do is, is tell you how I used it wrong 
at the start when I first started doing. Uh, I, I think it's helpful to know, like, A, that we all make mistakes and, and it's okay. Um, but also, as a, as a non-example, like, interleaving is quite um, enticing and, and, and lots of people really want to do it. So um, I think to exemplify some things we want to So when I first started using interleaving, I would um, I could be teaching a lesson. Let's say I was teaching a lesson on finding the area of a circle. And then like, at some random point within the lesson, I would throw in a question about fractions because they've been in fractions the last week. Um, and, and then I'll go back to the area of a circle and then I might come back to a fractions question like, just before we wrap up. And it, it, it was essentially like, let me just mix some random topics in here and, uh, and, and get students to, to switch between the two. That's definitely not the way to do it. So like, categorically, I was I was definitely wrong in, in doing that. Um, I think a better example is, is like how I try and use it now. And one of the like my favorite examples I think was so easy to understand is when I'm when I'm telling students about the radius of the diameter. So if I was like blocking my my instruction in my practice, I'll, I'll draw a diagram on the circle. I'll label the radius on it, on it um, and I'll like five centimetres, and then I'll say, like, this is the radius, it's five centimetres. And then I'll give students similar diagrams um, and say, write down the radius of this and, and write down the diameter, which is twice the radius. And they'll go through and they'll write down radius, diameter, radius, diameter for, for each of these. Um, and then I'll say, this is the diameter, it's, you know, 16 centimetres, find the radius, you half it, and then I'll give them loads of questions which have the diameter on, and they're finding diameter radius, diameter radius. And, and really what they're doing each time is, in the first set where they've just got the radius, they're just copying down what's in the question, because that's what the radius is. And then all they're thinking is, all right, I've just got to double this number. In, in the second set of questions, copying down the diameter value, and they're thinking, right, I've just got half this number. And they're not really, like, um, focusing their attention to what, what is radius and diameter. So that, that's... If I was blocking them, if I was interleaving, I would draw my circle, draw the radius on, and say, this is how you find the radius and diameter. Then I would give another example with the diameter. So draw a circle, draw the diameter, and say, this is how you now find radius and diameter. And then my practice would be, I want you to find radius and diameter for all of these circles, but the questions would differ. So in a completely random order, there would be questions involving where they're given the radius, also where they are then given the diameter and they will be mixed up. So each time they're having to think, well, hold on, what do I have? Do I have the radius or do I have the diameter? And once they've decided that, they then have to think about, well, now I've got one, how do I then get to the other? And they're reinforcing that relationship each time rather than sort of just blindly regurgitating a, a process, essentially. Like I'm really, it really draws your attention to what is the relationship between these two properties of a circle? It brings in that kind of effort in their in their work as well, because imagine if you're just going through and half in the diameter all the time, it becomes a little bit easier. It gives this kind of illusion of of knowing and makes it feel comfortable. Whereas mixing that up, as you've mentioned there, just gives that little bit of uncomfortable feeling, which means they can't quite relax and have to keep thinking. Yeah, and and. What, one of the things that really stuck out to me when I was reading the research was um, this experiment that, that Professor Donosky described in the toolbox paper. In the blocked group versus the interleaved group, the blocked group made four times as many content errors. And content errors were things where they had um, misapplied a formula. They selected the wrong formula. They misidentified the shape. Like it, it was to do with this subject knowledge as opposed to like a numerical error. Like, like they just typed in the wrong number in the calculator. So even though our students might find it harder initially, they make more mistakes initially, um, in the long term, because they we're getting them to think really hard about this, this concept, this, this feature, the underlying principles, that's what they're going to remember when they then come back to it next. So they're more likely to remember that, that concept rather than just like this process that we've just drilled into them. And it's a wonderful example in what you kind of note there. Although they might make more mistakes in the interim, it's going to work out 
He found that's a fascinating insight that you made yeah. from Dunlosky's research about four times as many errors in in the block. Well, that's amazing when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, is is uh, when I think back to my practice before I came across this research, that that is the standard mode of practice. We give students an idea, we get them to do lots and lots of practice, and then we move on to the next one. Um, and this idea of actually not only are we not um, making full use of it, we're actually potentially promoting errors and, and, and misunderstanding mm-hmm. by not explicitly making these comparisons and, and getting students to think really deeply about it. Um, yeah, like that, I, I completely agree with you. Like that one sort of fact, I think, like, blew my mind. <laughs> it certainly does. Thank you so much for that insight. How can we think about elaborate interrogation and self-explanation? <laughs> What are they and how can we incorporate them into our classroom? Yeah, I, I think these are probably the two that um, teachers probably already do without potentially knowing it, like without um, having dubbed these two things. Um, broadly speaking, elaborative interrogation is about asking why. why. Why is something the case? And self-explanation is asking yourself what's happening or, or how has something happened um, so for going back to to the radius and diameter example i might put up a question um for the circle with a diameter and say like this is 16 centimeters um, the radius is eight why why is the radius eight because i want students to recall the relationship between these two concepts between the idea of diameter and, and radius so that's why and then I'll say, how? How have I done this? And then we've got the idea of, well, radius is, is half, so I've halved this value to, to get to my radius. Obviously, there's like a significant overlap between like asking the student why and then asking them how. And so I, I think um, and, and one of the things I try to do in my in my book is communicate, it's, okay, I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, am I using this this strategy or this one? They are all good questions to ask our students, asking students to elaborate and explain and, and, and tell us you know, why something is the case or how they got to the answer they have. They are all good things and, and, and all tie into very similar mechanisms. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that and, and how can I recognise that teachers already can I do that. And, and it's a great example bringing that back to the diameter and, and radius. Thank you so much for that. And that brings us to the kind of least effective strategies according to Dermoski's research. What are those least effective strategies? Yeah, so um, first Dermoski identified five of them. Um, I'm going to start with the most controversial one, uh, like in, in my own opinion, I'll be like, I think in my own opinion, um, which is summarisation. Um, I say controversial because like, I, I, I summarise all the time. When I'm making notes, when I'm studying for my masters, for my, for my undergraduate degree, like I'm constantly summarising what I listened to or heard in lectures and, and things like that. And so I came across like, the toolbox paper and you know, this categorisation of least effective or less effective. Sorry, um, I, could, I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite square that circle. Um, I then read uh, Zoe and Mark Ince's in action book part of the series around generative learning, and summarisation is one of the like. One of the promoted strategies in there. And that, that added to even more confusion. Um, and, and I think the key to unlocking the categorization here is, is the idea of opportunity cost. I think what Professor Donosky tried to communicate is the idea that summarization in and of itself is not a bad technique. However, it's potentially not as good as some of the other ones who in, in the categories above it. So like the amount of time I might spend training a student to become a skilled summarizer, and I could be better off just just giving them a quiz and getting to try and recall that set, that information. Um, I could be better off like getting them to explain and expand on an idea and use some self-explanation. And so there's the idea of opportunity cost. Like this is good, but there's something that might be even better. Um, and 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 um, yeah, I, I think funnily enough. Uh, I was listening to one of your podcasts with John Hutchinson the other day, and and, and you discussed a quote from from uh, Dylan William, who, who says essentially the same thing. Like, you know, 
how can we stop someone doing something good to make time for them to do something even better? And, and I think that's a similar concept with summarization. The other ones were um, highlighting and, and uh, underlining, essentially not very effable processes. I can, I can highlight and underline a passage of text without really actively processing that information. It's not effortful in the same way some of the other um, strategies are. Um, however, if my purpose is to make it really easy for me to come back to that information later on and pick it out, um, it's great, brilliant. I'm going back to the conversation we had earlier and actually the, the idea you gave me about um, kids using it as, as a way to facilitate practice testing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. We definitely don't want kids, or even ourselves, to be like chucking our highlighters in the bin. Um, like, yeah, you know, that, that's definitely not what uh, what Professor Donosky said. I think he's, I think his phrasing is he calls it a safety blanket. A highlight is a safety blanket for children, for, for our students. So we don't want to remove that safety blanket, um, but we want them to understand that this is like, this is a first step on a longer journey of learning. There's much more that they can do to help themselves. Similarly, like rereading, again, we can pretty passively read reread a text. And I think rereading is really like interesting one. Because what students will do, um, and, and like, they're not alone in this, is they'll they'll like they'll read they'll read the page from the textbook, shut it, and then like, all right, okay, and, and try and do some of this like practice testing and recall and, and obviously get it all correct because they've just read that information. And so they like fall into this trap and it lulls you into this sense of like, oh yeah, I've learned it because I, I haven't looked at the book, but I've just managed to recall everything on that page. Um, and so like, that, that's again, like, yeah, another really interesting one. Um, and then the, I think the other two were, were um, like keyword mnemonic, imagery for text. And he sort of grouped these into similar things. Again, like um, Tom Sherrington and I were discussing the mnemonics. Uh, and it's funny because he discussed one that, that he's a, as a science teacher, um, there's a mnemonic for, for naming planets. It's like my my very easy method for, um, I, you know, I can't even remember it. And so what happens is kids will remember the mnemonic, but they'll not remember like, what those things are behind it. And um, so again, like, what, what do I really want my kids to pay attention to? Is it this mnemonic uh, or, or is it like the thing behind it? And again, if, if I can do that successfully, like do it. Like, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, you know, in maths, we teach soccer toa like, religiously in, in, in trigonometry. Like, I'm sure there's like listeners who um, who don't teach maths are having nightmares, like just at least soccer toa, flashbacks to 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 the, to the days doing maths because like, it's just stuck with you. But it's stuck with you for a really good reason. Um, so, like, I, I think I think the way to think about those less effective strategies is like facilitators for some of those more effective ones. Certainly. And, and you gave me, kinda, you heart me back to my university days. You, <laughs> you, you wonderfully explained my study strategy of read something, close it, <laughs> re- recount it beautifully, and then just kick back and, and <laughs> give myself a cup of tea and a reward because I thought oh, I've absolutely nailed it here. So, yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned mnemonics. I mean, I've got Roy G. Biv for the colours of the rainbow. It just came straight. <laughs> yeah. It came straight into my mind, and there's so many, many like that. And actually, that planet one, I, I listened to somebody say that planet one like about two days ago, and I still can't remem- remember it myself. So, <laughs> yeah. Was it? Um, so you mentioned there about kind of rereading, rereading being a bit passive. Is that why? Because highlighting and rereading are our favourites of our students. And you mentioned there that Dunlosky mentioned that they're safety blankets. Is, is that why they're kind of not as effective as other ones? Because they are quite passive activities? Um, a, a bit of both. So, like, A, yes, they're not really effortful. Like, I can do them quite passively. Don't really have to actively think about a lot of information. You know, it's quite plausible for me to read through a page. But actually, my attention's on, you know, what's going on outside. My, my mate's playing football on the field. Um, and and like, I could read it. My eyes could follow that text, but actually, I've like I've taken in absolutely none of it. Um, so that's one side of it. Is like it's not effortful. The other side of it is like, the full sense of security it gives us, and as you like beautifully illustrated, like with your <laughs> with your own university day anecdote, um, a lot of these things 
will make us think that we've learned something really well. Um, like I, I will reread something. And I've read a hundred percent of that information, but if I test myself, a I can only recall the stuff I can recall. I'm probably not going to be a hundred percent, and I'm going to get stuff wrong. So I haven't covered all the information, and I've got stuff wrong with practice testing. With rereading, I have covered all the information, and I've got it all correct. So like, there, there is a reason that we're drawn towards this strategy. It's because it inherently rewards us and makes us think we're doing a really good job. And the other strategy like makes us feel bad because we're getting it wrong. Um, <laughs> and and like you know, like no one wants to get things wrong. Um, so so like we're actively drawn towards one and pushed away from from the other and it, it can create a vicious circle uh, if we don't help students to understand actually what's going on behind the scenes here. Well, certainly it's it's so it's so fascinating you see that because it, it really is true that you know we do those kind of strategies like climate reading because it does make us feel like we know stuff and <laughs> getting quiz quizzing ourselves and getting it wrong does make us feel like oh, you can see you can see our students give up because oh, I don't know this, I can't get this, I'm never getting this. When actually, when they, even though they've struggled a little bit, they might find it, they might know it a little bit later on, as we know from that kind of studies into retrieval and so on. And, and kind of to close off that section there, kind of thinking about students' independent study, I'm fascinated by independent study and what we should be teaching our students and how we should be guiding them. Um, with all that in mind, what, what should we be teaching our students to do during independent study? Yeah, I think the first thing to um, preface that with is that it's really hard to, to get students to do these things. Like As, as we've described, this vicious circle, um, like it's, it's really challenging to go to a student and say to them, I know you're going to get it wrong. I know it's going to feel hard, but do it anyway. Like, you know, as a, as a six, we're saying this to, you know, teenagers, it's, it's really difficult. Um, to, to anyone, let alone like young adults and, and, and perhaps even younger people. But um, some of the ways that we can do that is, is uh, we can account for and control what we can control. So we might start our lessons by saying, right, like, here's a blank piece of paper. I want you to write down everything you possibly can about like, fractions that we did last week. Um, and so it's sort of like making it, you know, kids don't have a question that they need to get right or wrong. They're just trying to remember as much as they can. But we know that that recall can be helpful. We could set homework tasks that do similar things. Like This is a homework I set to you last, last month. So in that lesson, what we're going to do is I'm going to recap some of these things. I'm going to, I, might, I might do some you know, mini whiteboard activities just to like refresh that memory and make sure students have got like the correct understanding. And then for homework, I'll set that topic that I've just refreshed for them. So I've like clarified it in the lesson and then getting them to consolidate it as homework afterwards. And and really easily, like, you could you could reuse homework. There's nothing to say. Like if kids done it once, they shouldn't do it again. Um, they're going to forget it, right? Like I, I'd be amazed if a student sat there, sat there going, yeah, I answered this question six weeks ago and just recalls the answer <laughs> w- without thinking about it. You know, if they can do that, then... They should be probably studying for the undergraduate. I think the GCSEs they can get, <laughs> they can get a pass in the GCSEs. Um, and and I think like regularly reminding students, like giving them flashcards, giving them the resources, and and saying like you know, I can see you've highlighted your notes. Great starting point. Like, what else are you doing? And engaging them in those conversations, helping them to be accountable for it as well. Like showing me your flashcards. Like, everyone's going home. This is your homework. Is to go home and make these flashcards. So I think those are some of the ways that we can sort of facilitate students becoming independent and, and, and using these strategies for themselves. Certainly, I love love flashcards. It's a great way for families to get involved with their with their, with their ch- children and and then getting it out actually the scene. You know, kind of student, you're not getting your you're not getting your pudding until you answer five questions, <laughs> five questions about science with a flashcard. You know, it'll be what but what a fantastic way to help them. Them, yeah, absolutely. Them, them learn and I love that note about how you can reuse homework. You know, it's, it's teaching. Teaching's a busy job, and there's a lot of workload with teaching. And, and it's a, wonderful how you said that. You know, it's very unlikely to have yeah. a student that, that can absolutely. remember an exact question they were asked six weeks, two months later. So that's an interesting point that we can make. That 
kind of, and it also brings about that spacing as well because you're bringing something back and reusing it a little bit later on. So I, thank you for that. You close off the book by offering some words of caution. So what words of caution can you provide for, a, provide for us now that we're armed with the information around the least, the least effective, the much promise and the most effective strategies? I think you touched on the point there, right? Like teaching is a really, really busy job. It's very rare that we get time to sit and, and, and reflect and think deeply about, you know, what do I want to change about my practice? How, how can I develop um, something new in my, in my practice? Mm-hmm. Um, let alone having that conversation with, with colleagues. And so what really commonly happens is um, we will, and as, I, as I demonstrated, like with interleaving, read something and think, right, like, I'm going on Monday morning and I'm going to do this thing. Um, and that, that's not to say, like, I think the enthusiasm there is brilliant. Like, I, I love it when teachers do that because like, it shows me that they're really keen to, to A, improve themselves, but really like, the key thing that matters is they're really keen to improve their outcomes for the students that they're working with. However, we want to temper that enthusiasm and, and like, approach it with some caution. Because our goal is to improve the outcomes for our students. But if we make a change without necessarily fully understanding it, we, we run the risk of, of potentially doing the opposite. So like as I said, like me throwing in random bits of of um, like learning and random unrelated topics when I was first trying to leave, I probably just created more confusion for my students than than I actually like facilitating their learning. If I'm practice testing, and as we've said many times, I'm not giving them feedback, like I, I missed the part that feedback is key, then they're going to consolidate the wrong thing. And so instead of helping our kids, we potentially run the risk of hindering them. So that's why it's important to like really take time and approach this with some caution. And, and I've signposted some of the resources that I use when for myself and when I work with um, teachers and, and, and leaders across the sector from the EEF and their implementation guidance. Um, because the question they start from is, well, like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And having a really good understanding of that problem before we start to like, think about the implementation of a solution, I think is key. Like, if we don't know what we're trying to fix, we don't know when we'll fix it. So I think I, I think I remember, I think it was Sarah Cottingham talking with Craig Barton on, on a podcast, or it might have been a blog and she referenced, I think it might have been a blog actually, and she referenced why sometimes tips and tricks don't work for teachers because they don't actually fix the initial problem. So it's wonderful that you re- reference the implementation guide and that key question about you know what is the problem we're investigating and how can we fix it. So just to close off there before we move into the quick fire questions, the questions that I ask every guest, and can you direct people please to where they can buy the book, and can you direct them to um, where they might be able to interact with you a little bit more, perhaps a social media handle or a blog. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can buy the book at, at pretty much all major bookstores, Waterstones, um, Amazon, um, John Cat directly, especially if you've got a teacher tap voucher, like go to the John Cat website and make use of it there. Um, you can uh, contact me on Twitter at inspiredlearn underscore, um, or you can uh, read some of my thinking on my blog, bits.ly slash unpacking education Brilliant. thank you i love that little mention for the teacher tap vouchers which of course we're racking up just now so highly recommend you <laughs> yeah. using one of them to get sing's wonderful book about john dunlosky's paper so it brings us to the end of the interview section and um, thank you so much for sharing some of the, the in- insights and wisdom there we're now moving on to my quick fire round these are the three questions that i ask every guest that come on the podcast are you ready for them sure let's go Okay, the first question is, what are you reading currently? Um, I'm, I'm taking a break from academic and, and, and education-based reading. Um, I'm reading a book called People Person um, by Candice Carty-Williams. Um, it's, set, it's set in uh, London, really interesting fictional story. But yeah, I want to just take some time out. <laughs> but we, cert- we certainly need to. I think I need to take some of that advice. Yeah. Okay, I can get wrapped up too much. But certainly after, imagine after... <laughs> writing a book and, and, yeah. and immersed in educational research and books. It, it's it's worthwhile taking some time off. So thanks for sharing that. Um, my second question 
to you is what is your current professional development focus? Um, so I also work with um, Ambition Institute as a, as a teacher educator and part of my role there involves coaching. So that, that's really my focus and specifically around instructional coaching and, and developing my um, knowledge and practice of that. Brilliant. Thank you. It's such such a um, current theme in education and something that we, that we really need to think deeply about to get right. So thank you for, for mentioning that. And, and my final question to you, Singh, is what do you love the most about being a teacher? I'm going to hijack John John Hutchinson's response here uh, to your question to this to the same question. I think he said something along the lines of uh, conversations with children are much more interesting than conversations with adults. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think I think that sums it up pretty nicely. <laughs> it certainly does. It's such a wonderful job to be in, and the young people are are kind of a huge part of that. So thank you, thank you so much for sharing that. So that brings us to the end of the episode today. I'd like to thank you so, so much for giving up your time on a Tuesday evening um, and persevering through some technical difficulties that we had <laughs> with the internet connection. But thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and, and your work. And I'd encourage anyone to go out and buy your book. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, had a great time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Becoming Educated. Before you go, can I ask for a few things that will only take a minute? I'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you are listening from to get each episode into more ears. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. And finally, to keep the conversation going, please use the hashtag becomingeducated and tag me on Twitter at DN Leslie. I'll be back soon with more insights and knowledge from the greatest profession on earth.